Good morning, everyone. What a pleasure to see you all and to worship our great God together. A few announcements before we get started. As you can see that we will be having communion today, so if you're a born-again Christian, this is the time to answer the Lord's call to receive of the, uh, the bread and the cup, and we'll do that at the end of service, and all are invited to that. Um, just remembering the Lord's death till he comes. Uh, the 21st of this month, there is the AGM, so that'll just happen after the, the study, and we'll probably, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, go through the, the re- it's a required meeting, but we have a quarterly meeting anyway. It's like, it's just a little bit of extra information. So that's good. I invite you to stick around for that. Also, the uh, roster is out on, in the foyer. There is a, uh, a list. We, we basically, everything that we do is all done through you. It's volunteers who are serving one another by greeting and counting and morning tea and worship. And uh, so it's an opportunity to serve and also uh, to take a break as, as the Lord should lead. So it's a great opportunity to minister to the body so check that out. And finally, uh, we do have a list for interest for a church family camp slash retreat we're planning in April 2024. So we're just confirming what the minimums are. And once that's done, we plan to put down the deposit. And so it should be great. It's in Coleroy. It's a beautiful spot. We'll be opening the word and just a great time together as a church family. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us all, that you, you are wise, you are powerful, that you have called us, that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and that you've given us your word, that we can study together, that we can draw near to you in faith, that we can do your will and be fruitful because you have ordained us to be so. And we thank you that you allow us to serve and to contribute and to give and to uh, really lay down our lives as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable service unto you. And I pray that we would be united in your love, that we would rejoice in how good you are, even when we don't feel good, we feel bad, and we feel like everything is against us. Thank you that you are for us. And I pray as we read this text, as we consider how it applies to our lives, that you would speak to each one, that you would fill us with your spirit, and that would have an understanding of your truth so that we can walk in it, and be a testi- we can testify of your goodness uh, continually, now and forever. And we just thank you again for this time and place and opportunity you've given us to worship and fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 42, starting at verse 25. I think for everyone who blames the devil for their troubles, there's people who blame God. We see that Job's wife did this. She thought it was foolish that her husband would keep his integrity of trusting God when God allowed such trouble to befall them. And he rebuked her. He said, should we accept good from God and not evil? And that's really a sticking point for a lot of people. Because when we have good that we experience, we can credit it on, well, I'm entitled to this whether as a child of God or for my obedience or my sacrifice, that basically I've done something right. So I am entitled to this good that I am experiencing. But when we have troubles, we see it as injustice. We go like, what is happening? This is not right. Something's wrong. And we don't credit God for that very thing that we're saying is bad. 
when God is still gracious, he is just, he is holy, he is merciful. And when we give space for unbelief in God's goodness, and that he is working all things together for good to those who love God, we can stumble at even at the good things God does. And we'll see it in our passage today. And we see it when people refuse the gospel. I mean, the gospel is the good news. It's only good for us to be forgiven for our sins, to have eternal life, to be accepted in the beloved. But there are some who would reject that as something bad when it's something good. It's something for us that God has done. So how do you determine what's good or bad? Well, often we make a snap decision based upon how we feel or how, if we like it at the time, if it advances or hinders our current plans. But when things are unexpected, it can surprise us, it can throw us, it can offend us, it frustrates us because we had a plan and now that plan is out the window. We have this personal bias that impacts our outlook. We just think, how does this affect me? And if we're not happy with that answer, we think it's a bad thing. I think about a dignitary. You got, who here watched the coronation yesterday? Just, right? There are, there are a handful of people that did watch that. I, freely, I confess I did not. I, I was content to read some articles about it just to see how it went. But I think about a dignitary making a public appearance and that person would be very upset if they were tackled to the ground from behind, right? They'd be like, what is going on? This is disrespectful. It's painful. Look at my grazed knees and elbows. But if they knew it was their bodyguard that put their life on the line to protect them from a sniper's bullet, they would have gratitude. So the very thing that seemed very bad and humiliating and embarrassing and an affront to their dignity they could turn right around now that they know the full picture and go, wow, my life has been spared. And that dignitary could say, well, look, and, and be very upset about their damaged clothing and their, their grazed knees. But you know, it's evidence the bodyguard did a good job because a complaining dignitary is better than a dead one. And uh, those grazed knees don't feel good, but avoiding assassination is. And so there's that big picture where you come back and say, well, you know, it was for the best. I'm not feeling good right now that someone would plot to assassinate me or that I would be thrown on the ground in front of people, but it was for my good in the end. Now, we're reading in Genesis 42, there was a severe famine, which is a bad thing, but God would use it for good. He sent 10 of his sons to Egypt to buy grain and unknown to them, the governor of the land was Joseph, their brother that they had sold to Midianite traders over 20 years prior. And Joseph put them to the test. He arrested them. He, he uh, accused them of being spies. He put them in prison for three days. And then he said, you must bring your youngest brother back to Egypt to show that you're not spies. And then you'll be able to free freely trade in the land, Simeon would be released from prison, but in the meantime, he's still in prison. And this is what happened when they returned back to their dad in Genesis 42, 25. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every, money, every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. 
But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? So after releasing the nine brothers from prison, Joseph's like, fill their sacks with grain, put the money back in the bags, and give them provisions for their journey. So all the silver that they had paid, they just put it right back in the grain. And uh, it was only after they departed from Egypt and they were at an encampment, they were going to feed the donkey. And one of the brothers is like, oh man, look, my money's been restored. All the money I paid, it's right here. Did they celebrate it? They're like, right on. This is a good turn. They're like, oh no, what is God doing to us? It says their hearts failed them. They were afraid It seemed like a mistake, maybe something more sinister. And we know that they had been suffering from a guilty conscience concerning their brother because they had just had an interaction with Joseph when they said, you know, God is bringing our sin to light. We should have listened to our brother when he cried out to us, but we wouldn't. So they were feeling guilty and then they have this happen and they're like, this can't be good because they were told, do not come back to Egypt unless you have your youngest brother with you. But if this was a test of their honesty, because they were like, if you're honest, if you're true, you'll produce your youngest brother. Well, now they've got a problem because they have this money that's been planted in their bags. And if they're going to be honest and return it right away, guess what? Their youngest brother's not with them. So they're like, what is going on here? This is a trap. This is trouble. So rather than feeling thankful, like, well, hey, we have food. God brought us out of prison. We get to go home now. There's a way to get Simeon out of prison too. They are just feeling God's against them. What is God doing to us? As if it was a bad thing. They interpreted this as a bad thing from God and it was unwelcome. His provision and blessing seen as a curse. Now, we all tend to depend upon our feelings uh, to determine good or bad, like our past experiences. We can have a past experience that affects future experiences, right? Things that we've observed, we, we see things in the world, they concern us, they're out of our control, or things that we don't know, unknowns can plague us. And it's natural for us to lean on our own understanding rather than trust in God. And we're so overwhelmed by the things out of our control um, and the things we don't know than really trusting God who knows us, who's able to help us. I've, had, I've heard people say things like, I was late for work today. Maybe God kept me from a fatal accident. So they saw this negative thing, being late for work, as possibly a positive thing because um, it was of God, right? And maybe it was. It, it can also be a way to deny personal responsibility of like, well, could you, were, did you have anything to do with being late today? Or are you going to put that on God so that you don't have to actually adjust your lifestyle? Like, get up a little earlier, go to bed a little earlier. But that's just an aside. Um, Jesus told his disciples, Lazarus is sleeping. They knew he was sick. Lazarus is sleeping. And uh, they're like, yeah, that's good because he'll get well. And Jesus is like, well, guys, he's actually dead. We're just going to go wake him up. And they're like, they could have said, well, that's bad, right? 
Like, it's good if he's sleeping because he could get well. We see the good that could come out of him sleeping, but we can't see the good of him being dead. But Jesus saw the good in it because he intended to raise him to, from the dead, not just so that he would be well and that his, fa- his sisters wouldn't be bereaved, but that people would come to eternal salvation through that deed. They would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. Know that God, the good that God is doing is not the good that you could possibly see coming out of it. We limit it to what we can think is good. But wouldn't that be great if that miracle happened and that person got saved? Well, God's plan is infinitely greater than that, than what you can conceive as good. Yes, that would be good if someone came to Christ. But know that that's little compared to what God is doing. Like he's actually doing something awesome beyond what you could imagine or ask for. Instead of looking for the light of the tunnel, look to Jesus who is the light of the world and in him is no darkness. So rather than, I guess, trying to put everything in a positive light that's negative, know that everything that is negative is actually a positive for the believer. And we're gonna continue on that theme as we go through this passage. Genesis 42, 29. Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more and the youngest with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country said to us, by this, I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone and bring your youngest brother to me. So I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you that you may trade in the land. Now, unlike the time where they had brought Joseph's bloodied coat back to their father and lied about what happened to him, they were honest this time. They did say what had truly happened. They went down to Egypt as they had been told and the governor spoke roughly to them. We know that Joseph disguised himself to them. He acted rough and aggressive and accused them of being spies. And then in their defense, they're like, well, we're 12 brothers and one of them is no more dead and the other is in Canaan with the father. And then the governor said they needed to bring Benjamin to Egypt to show that they were indeed honest men, that they were telling the truth. And if they did this, they would be free to trade. Now, the brothers knew that Jacob was very protective of Benjamin, so it wasn't their idea. They weren't saying, like, this is going to sweeten the deal. They say, we have to do this. If we want to get Simeon out of prison, if we want to get food in the famine, we have to bring Benjamin with us. Now, this phrase, honest men or true men, it, it's five times in this chapter. There are some honest people in the Bible. I think of Job, that man of integrity. He retained his faith in God and he blessed God in times of plenty and during times of indescribable loss. Joseph's brothers weren't spies, but we do see spies in the Bible, people that have an ulterior motive for doing something. You could describe a spy as someone who has a loyalty that is hidden. They are posing as a friend when they're really an enemy. They're, tr- they're, they're not honest in their, uh, because they have an agenda. And for instance, Jesus, he had spoken a parable against the chief priests and scribes. 
They were afraid to take action on Jesus because of his popularity. And instead of talking to Jesus directly, it says in Luke 20, 20, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. So they had this covert agenda, right? They wanted to get the goods on Jesus, uh, find fault with him and accuse him. They were trying to worm their way into his, to hear his conversations, his private conversations, pretending that they were his followers. Now we can be fooled. Jesus wasn't fooled, but we can be fooled because we don't know people's motives or intents. In a world full of spies and scams, frauds, we need to be on guard against them, but we don't need to worry about them. We're told in the Bible that there's many false prophets that have gone into the world, yet we have firm footing through Christ to stand and to know what the truth is because he is the truth. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, he said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So from the example there, grapes, thorn bushes, figs, thistles. You don't have to be, know the Latin names to know the difference, right? And you'd say, well, that's a fig tree because there's figs on it, the evidence. And so a good tree is not going to give bad fruit. It's not going to bear thorns or thistles. It will bear figs because of its identity, what it is. And so you can de- you're not determining the identity because of what you see, but you can know what it is because of the evidence. And so based upon the things people say, if it's agreement with reality, you can know the true from the false. And the quality of the tree is determined by its fruit. It's like the bad fruit, the one that bears bad fruit, it's cut down. It's made into firewood, and God is going to judge the false prophets and those who speak deceit. Now, it's a small consequence to say there are false prophets out there somewhere. What matters most is if you are a person of integrity, a person who is honest and sincere before the Lord, that's within your power to control if you will speak the truth or if you will live a lie. And if we say God rules and reigns over all things and yet we justify fear and worry and anxiety, we're not being honest and sincere. So that's something to be repented of, that we are worrying when God is, he is king, he is in control. The church in Acts 7 sought out seven men of honest report That word honest report is derived from the word that we get martyr. So someone who would submit to being martyred for something, that shows a deep conviction, right? Being martyred for the sake of Christ is to say, I am a witness of Christ. I testify he is the Messiah. And I'm willing to put my life, not just say I'll put my life on the line, but actually give my life because I know this to be true. And that's how God wants us to live every day with that sort of conviction that Jesus is the Christ. 
that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Sincere in the love of Jesus. So we are to be upright. We are to speak what's edifying, what's true. Not just a one-time thing in an act of martyrdom, but someone of true, genuine witness. Someone who speaks the truth. Genesis 42, 35. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. To this point, they had only found the silver in one bag. But now, as they begin to dig deep, They pour their bags of grain out. They find that all of them have had their money returned. And when they saw it, what does it say? It says they were afraid, full of dread. That's not the kind of response I would have expected. Why were they afraid? One reason is likely because the money was not explained to them. They weren't told that they were going to receive it. And they didn't know what it meant. So these unknowns, they didn't know why it was there. They didn't know what the governor was up to. Now, if you have an unexplained pain in your abdomen, Dr. Google might give you 100 plus potential deadly maladies that you could have. And so I think something that's unexplained, I have this pain. It's persistent. It's getting worse. I don't know what it is. And sometimes knowing what it is doesn't really help because it could be something bad something we think is bad. Uh, You might have this loud, unexpected sound at night. Have you ever had that where there's a very distinct, loud noise and you are just, you wake up with just a shot of adrenaline. Like, what was that? That was not like rats in the attic. That was something different. Not the normal weird sounds you hear, but something a little scary. Maybe they felt like children in the The uh, C.S. Lewis book, Silver Chair, the children were being wined and dined by the giants of Harfang as guests for the autumn feasts when they chanced upon a cookbook and it said this, man, this elegant little biped has long been valued as a delicacy. It forms a traditional part of the autumn feast. They thought they were going as guests to the feast. They didn't know they were going to be the feast. And so they were afraid and they wanted to escape. Now, Jacob's sons, they come back loaded with grain, provisions, money in their bags. But Jacob, what is he thinking about? Only what he's lost and what he stands to lose. Not about the gain that they've received. He wasn't thinking about God's promises, God's protection, his provision at that moment. He blamed his sons for bereaving him of Joseph and he was closer to the mark than he thought. He didn't realize how close he was, but he said, you bereaved me of Joseph. Joseph's no more. Simeon is no more. You want to take Benjamin. All these are against me. It's ironic because every single thing that he says is against him is not true. Not one. Joseph was alive. He was the governor in Egypt. Simeon was, he says, no more. That means dead. He was not dead. He was in prison in Egypt. And the brothers did not want to take Benjamin. That wasn't their desire. That was what the governor had required of them. 
Joseph was the governor who wanted them to bring Benjamin and their family would be reunited ultimately with his father, Jacob. All the things that Jacob felt were against him were actually being used by God for him. But he was overwhelmed. He was afraid. He did not understand what God was doing. That rough talking governor was his long lost son. The one that he had been grieving over for 20 years. Simeon was being held in prison. He was held as collateral to reunite a family that had long been estranged. And to bring them to a place where the whole family, 70 persons, would have food for the duration of the famine. That would have claimed their lives otherwise. Like God was doing an amazing thing to save them. Yet he saw it as against him. Even if the situation was devised by Satan himself, it would be redeemed by God who was for Jacob. And in that moment of forgotten faith and feeling overwhelmed, God was for Jacob. God had sent Joseph before him into Egypt to save many alive. Now Job, he was able to bless God at the news of his herds and his flocks and the death of his family, his 10 children. Jacob was not able to do this. We've heard the phrase, once bitten, twice shy. Well, Jacob's limp, it was evidence that he had been touched by the Lord. He had wrestled with the Lord and prevailed. But grief and fear of further pain and loss, it it like held him in a chokehold. He couldn't get out of that one. He lost sight of God's greatness, his power and promises due to his circumstances. In that moment, He was not trusting God. He wasn't looking to God. And this is how we are. We just see ourselves like this, like, oh, well, if things were really bad, maybe I'd be that way. Well, we can be like that about trivial things. And we we forget about God. We forget that he is working all things together for good. Now, when, when Joseph's bloodied coat was handed to Jacob, he refused all the comfort of his family. He said, he, he, decided that he would go down to his grave mourning the loss of his son. His hurt was so intense, he pushed away those who sought to comfort him, even God, and he stubbornly justified a life of grief without comfort. And when he saw that silver, he could only think of what he stood to lose, and he loved Benjamin. He didn't want to lose him. You know, sometimes when things, have you ever had like the feeling where things have been building? Like, okay, something happening. Like, okay, I can hold it in, I can maintain. But then something else happens. And then, and then you're right on the edge. And then something happens and you explode, right? You're trying to just stifle the feeling, stifle the feeling until you blow up. And you know, when a steam line blows up, there's a lot of force, it's a lot of damage, and we can be guilty of this. And the, the reason why we are this way is when we neglect to cast our cares on the Lord. We start carrying a mental load of disappointment or frustration or worry and fears, things that we were never meant to carry. And when we're crushed or we blow up over an insignificant thing, it shows that you are at your max. And something God has done is he made human beings with limits. We can only run so fast. We can only stay awake so long we can only jump so high. Now there may be people that can run faster than others. 
but there is a max. They can only lift so much. They can only do so much. And God's skilled to take us beyond what we can handle so that we can see our need for him. If we're going to trust him or continue suffering on our own, trying to do things our way. We can choose to cling to sin or cares or worries that work to destroy us and sap our strength, and, or we can repent of our unbelief and lay our burdens at the feet of Jesus. How would it change your life if you truly believed that everything that seems against you was actually working for your good? Everything. Everything that seems like it's working against you, that's actually working for your good. We spoke about this last week, but it bears repeating because in the moment when the grief is raw, when the anger flashes hot and we have these unknowns that are clawing at our minds, this goes completely against our natural way of thinking and living. When our plans are thwarted, when our dreams are devastated, we can know that God's working for good. We, we say to someone when they're like, oh, I'm hoping this will work. I hope that works out for you. Like it's just a, I, I, it's really out of pity or just care for the person that you, you hope it works out, but there's, there's no strength in that hope. But Paul, he says, we know all things work together for good to those who love God. And that's not to be quoted to dismiss someone's pain or discomfort saying, oh, don't worry about that terrible thing you're going through. It'll work together for good to dismiss their concerns or their feelings. But it is the ultimate reality for every believer. This is what we need to take to heart when we're overwhelmed, when we're thinking everything's against us. And that's all we can seem to focus on is the difficulties, the obstacles, the pains and the troubles, and that there's no end inside of them. This is the reality. God works things, all things together for good to those who love him. These guys have been literally enriched by their interaction with Joseph, who gave them the provisions, gave them their grain, gave them their money back. And yet Jacob could only think of what was against him and what he stood to lose. And you know, God would make it work together for good, even though they were faithless. They forgot this, it, like the grace of God shines here beautifully because we think, well, it worked out because I trusted. It worked out because I obeyed. It worked out for good because I learned the lesson. No, because of God. It was his plan from the beginning. And as we yield to him, as we trust him, he does the work. That's how gracious and good God is. When we're faithless, he is faithful. Verse 37, then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now, Reuben, he's very sure that he's going to bring Benjamin back safely. He puts his sons as collateral. He says, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back safe. And he's not, of course, wanting to kill his sons, but he's saying, I'm that confident that I would put lives on the line to protect Benjamin, to make sure he comes back okay. 
But Jacob's got the grain, he's got the provisions, and he's like, no, my son's not going with you. Full stop, end of story, no more discussion, he's not going. Joseph is dead, he's left alone. If any trouble happens to him, I will go down to the grave in mourning. You will bring me down. You see, he's accusing him. You will bring me down to the grave in mourning. There was this selfish dependency where Benjamin became Jacob's reason for living. He couldn't imagine life without him. He didn't want to. And it would require Jacob to take a step of faith in God to send Benjamin if they were going to survive the famine. Yet Jacob initially could not bring himself to agree. That's why we're, we don't, we're not going to go into the next chapter this week because you'll see out of need, his hand is forced. He must or they perish. This interaction, Joe, Jacob's emphatic no, it illustrates the truth that if our salvation or if the salvation of others depended on us, we are completely doomed, right? They're in the middle of a global famine. The only place where there's food is in Egypt. And he's like, Benjamin is not going to Egypt. And the only way they could buy food is if Benjamin went to Egypt, right? There was only one way of salvation for them and their household. We tend to cling to what could never save us rather than trust God. God had promised to make of Jacob a mighty nation. Yet in that moment, he couldn't part with Benjamin. He couldn't trust God at that time. And that step of faith was necessary for him. And the gospel, it requires faith in us as well. Jesus is the only way to eternal life, forgiveness of sin and righteousness. He's the only way that we can be reconciled to God and be redeemed from destruction. And we can refuse to receive that. And also having received it, we can refuse to walk according to it. Because we are called in our day. So it's not just you make a decision and an act of faith for salvation. You do. But as we, it's also the path of faith. It's living out the gospel, being obedient to what God is telling us now to retain fellowship with him. To be in fellowship with God. We must obey him. We have to keep trusting him. It's not just a one-time thing. We keep trusting him. We keep obeying him because he is our life. And so the cost of salvation and continuing fellowship with God requires taking steps of faith in obedience to Jesus. Now, Jacob, he couldn't save a soul. But faith in God demonstrated by obedience would lead to salvation of the whole household. And God allows situations that bring us to a place of desperation where we either choose God and faith in him or we perish. And in this way, a bad circumstance works for our best. Turning your Bibles to Romans 8, starting in verse 28. I thought it was very cool we sang this song today because, well, we're going to read it again. We touched on it last week, but we're going to go a bit further this week. Romans 8, 28 is where we begin. Paul writes, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he has called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these also he also glorified. We can agree a famine is a bad thing, but God would use that to reunite Joseph with his family, to save many people from death across many nations, and also advance God's plan of making through the children of Abraham a great nation. God knew Abraham before he created Abraham. And uh, God knew us before he knit us together in the wombs of our mothers. God knew which people would be his out of all the nations of the earth. Now, if you've watched someone repair an engine uh, or done it yourself, you know that there's many steps to accomplish the task. Sometimes there's a lot of interference because you have the engine in a small compartment. You have to remove a lot of parts to get to the broken part. And uh, that can be a lot of work. I read uh, that all major work on an F-250 Ford truck, it requires the body to be removed from the frame. So you kind of want to know that before you buy this truck, that like, well, if anything seriously goes wrong and the, the timing belt needs to be changed, you need to pull the frame off of the body. I mean, the body off the frame. It's like, oh, that, that's a bit of work. Uh, and, and I just think, oh, it's an easy fix. But the mechanic's like, no. There's actually, a, that's a big job. Oh, it's just a little part. It's still a big job. I've got to get to that little part. It may be a $5 part, but I've, it's going to take you know $1,000 to get to that part of labor. Now, God, when he created us, he knows everything. He knew the choices we would make freely. He knows the plans he has for us. And despite our unworthiness, he has chosen us. And he says, I elect you. I choose you so that you will be mine. And so Paul says he predestined or predetermined that born-again believers would be conformed into the image of Jesus. He knows where he's going with us. He knows how he's going to transform us and make him like himself, part of his body. And we can be certain that God will accomplish it by his grace. And so he goes on to say, to show the surety of what God has done, he predestined, he also called these he called, he also justified or declared righteous, and these he also glorified. And so God, in his wisdom, he gives a chance for everyone to respond to this call of salvation. And we are glorified in being born again, made complete in Christ by receiving his love. So how should we respond? Well, he goes on in verse 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
the trials and troubles of life, they fade in the glory of God's love and his good purposes for us. And since God is for us, he says, who can be against us? That's what's been established. God is for us. He has chosen us. He has called us. He has justified us. Now, when we picked teams for playing basketball, let's say on the, on the playground as a kid, there were always some older kids or, you know who the star players are. You're like, that guy's good. And I remember just this feeling of bring it on when you got the good players on your team. When you just knew, like, give him the ball. Let him do the work. Just feed the ball his way. He's going to score. She's going to get it done. Like, you don't need to, like, it was just going to be fun. You just go into that game feeling so confident. Right? Dodgeball, it doesn't matter. We've got him. We've got her. We can do this. We're, I'm just, I want to win, right? I just want to win. And now I've got the good players. We're going to win. Really look forward to that experience. And it would be so foolish if that player's on your team and you're like, holding the ball, throwing it out of bounds on purpose, not giving them the ball when they're going to help you win. It's like God's given you a life. Why don't we give him our lives? Why don't we entrust him with our future? Why don't we just say, wow, I'm looking forward to seeing what good God brings from this. I don't see anything good in it. It doesn't feel good to me, but I know he is. And I know he is able. He is promised. He is faithful. We can trust him. And so knowing God's for us, it doesn't matter who the opposition is. Like, bring it on. Because we've got Christ and he has us and we are in him. So God, he's shown his love and care for us by giving Jesus to be saved so we could be saved from sin and death. It's like God has paid the highest price already to buy us. He's not going to withhold anything in the kingdom from us. He's paid it all in the blood of Jesus. And it's like everything in the kingdom is just thrown in because God is so generous and good. And then Paul starts asking these rhetorical questions. Who will bring a charge against God's elect, against the God who chose us? No one. Who can bring a charge against the righteous judge? He's the one who selected us. He's the one who's washed us, who's justified us. And then he says, who is he that condemns? No one. Satan can accuse us. People can complain all they want, but Jesus died on the cross to save us, to atone for our sins. And he's overcome sin and death by his death and resurrection. He's the one interceding on behalf to the Father. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, no one and nothing. And he he has a big list. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, lack of clothes, danger, and death, all work together for good to those who love God, the called according to his purpose. It's like, wow. God's thought of everything. Because of God and all he's done for us on the cross, we're more than conquerors through him who loved and loves us. So death nor life, spiritual powers, angels and demons, things present or future, dizzying heights if you're afraid of heights, or depths that paralyze you and depress you. No created thing can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus. God loves you because he loves you. And nothing can sever you from that love 
or from him working all things together for good. Amen. Together, we're going to receive communion and we remember the body of Jesus being broken for us, his blood being shed for us on the cross. His body was broken so we could be made whole. His blood was shed so we can be cleansed, that there would be atonement provided, a payment made for our sin. And the Bible says that in eating this bread and drinking this cup, we proclaim his death till he comes. He is interceding on our behalf. He is coming back and we want to be ready. And we do see in Romans 5, 8, it says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God demonstrated his love when we were undeserving and remain undeserving of it. And uh, his death is a proclamation of his love, a demonstration of his love for us. And so having received this free gift by faith in Christ, believing that he was sent by God, that he died on the cross, he rose again, he's ascended to the Father and intercedes for us. We look forward to him. We look to him, the way, the truth, and the life. So instead of feeling worried, instead of being uh, full of cares and fears, wondering what God is doing to us, or fearing what we could stand to lose, consider all Jesus has done for you, whom he has given for your salvation and how God and his love are always reasons to rejoice. Let's take, let's keep taking that step of faith to trust him when we can't see the good in what God allows. So if I could please invite the worship team forward, they will lead us in a song. And as we are singing, please come up and receive of the bread and cup. And then I'll just lead us in a prayer at the end of that song. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for calling us, for choosing us, for determining what you would do and for seeing it done. And thank you for this, this really, this amazing illustration in the life of Joseph and Jacob, how it was just overwhelming for him and, and how we identify with his feelings, feeling bereaved, feeling lost, feeling afraid and overwhelmed and and just really digging in our heels and not letting go, not going the way that you have ordained us to go because we just can't see any good in it. And I pray, Lord, you'd bring us to a place of, of uh, just brokenness, of humility, of throwing ourselves upon your mercy and choosing to take a step of faith to obey you and to trust you. And, and thank you that we're not going out on a limb we're actually drawing closer to you as we walk in faith. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to uh, remember the price paid for us, to recognize the love that you've poured out upon all, and to be receivers of that, to be givers of that, to be forgiving one another as you forgive us, to love one another as you love us. And I thank you for the price that Jesus paid, and we remember him today and his sacrifice, his suffering, so that we could rejoice. And thank you that he, he went through to the cross for the joy that was set before him and that he saw it done and said, it is finished. And we thank you, Lord, that he didn't remain in the tomb, but he rose three days later, as he said, and that he is alive, and now he lives in us. 
And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who has filled us, who guides us into all truth, who helps us be your witnesses here, there, and everywhere. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, use us to be your ministers, your ambassadors, your soldiers, your uh, servants who love you, bond servants who, who just rejoice to be part of your family. And I thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters and for the unity that we have in Jesus and pray that we would love one another as you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.